2: Good evening, Mr. Real. How are you doing?
0: I am doing excellent, folks. Another episode of Mormonism Live. Radio Free Mormon and Bill Real here, and this is going to be a fun uh, a fun little ride tonight.
2: It is, and to start it off, it looks like Swanee guessed right. I'm wearing a Marvel t-shirt. I don't know how she figured out that that's what I'd be wearing, but she wins the prize for that. What are you wearing tonight?
0: I'm wearing, actually, I wore this shirt for a few minutes yesterday for my episode with Brittany Hartley. And uh, this is just uh, like a pastel, little artsy kind of uh, button-down shirt I've got on.
2: Yeah, I don't think anybody got that.
0: My wife says I've gotten a little bougie as I've gotten older.
2: Oh, really? Well, I hope that's yeah, a good yeah. thing. It sounds painful. <laughs> it's,
0: it's not. It uh, just means to you know dress a little nicer, uh, have a little nicer appetite, that kind of thing. Well,
2: that's I good. Like ni-
0: yeah. So it's it's one of those things. I don't I don't do much, and so having a few nice shirts is the thing I do.
2: Yeah, Bill, there's been uh, one thing that's been going on. It's been a little bit in the news, at least in the blogger knackle, about a spate of sudden firings of CES teachers going on in the past week or so. What I've heard is kind of just rumor so far. I'm not sure that I know any facts about it. Did you want to talk about that?
0: I, I will only say that it seems deeply contradictory that the church is a huge fan of uh, protecting pastoral confidentiality of child molesters and child abusers. and But it also needs its BYU faculty to waive their pastoral confidentiality because it is not important there.
2: Right, right. And I think that we also want to just put a shout out, if there's anybody who has actually been on the short end of the stick in receiving a pink slip, from being a CES teacher who wants to talk about it. In other words, if we have a direct witness, please reach out to Bill Real at Mormon discussions and you can give the rest of your uh, email address.
0: Yeah. Mormon discussions, plural with an S on the end podcast with an S on the end at gmail.com. Or you can message me on Facebook messenger. And we would love that. Like if you guys ever have some really juicy piece of information or are close to some of these things that happen, we would love to hear from you. Uh, it helps us create more well-rounded episodes.
2: Yes, and that's what we're into, well-rounded episodes. You got it. And speaking of well-rounded episodes, we've got a great show tonight with a wonderful guest. We're going to bring him on here in a second. His name is Richard Dutcher. He's done a lot of movies, but we're going to be talking about four of them tonight. And three of them have already been produced and released, in fact, maybe some time ago. 22 years for the first one, we'll be talking about God's Army. Then a year later, he came out with Brigham City. And then in 2005, I believe it is, uh, he did a sequel to God's Army, God's Army 2, also called States of Grace. I have made a point of watching all three of those movies in the past four or five days in preparation for tonight's show. I had watched them all before, Mm -hmm. much closer in time to when they came out. But there's something about watching them again and knowing that I'm going to have to try and be talking about them in a semi-intelligent fashion that makes me pay a lot of attention. And as I watch all of these movies, there is so much in them. There's so much depth, there's so much richness. And we're gonna talk about that tonight along with Richard Dutcher's faith journey. And we'll see if we can pack that all into 60 or 70 minutes. If we bring Richard Dutcher on now, that'd be great. There he is. The man, the myth, the
3: legend.
2: And he even has his own soundtrack. You carry your own soundtrack with, with you wherever you go, Richard. <laughs> I hope that's
1: not me. I've never heard that music before. So. That was
0: definitely me. That's the alarm getting set at Family Pond for the night.
1: Wow, oh, I,
2: I have this kind of theme music that plays in my head all the time wherever I go. I think it's the theme from The Incredibles. So, anyway, Richard, thank you for coming
1: on tonight. Are you in Los Angeles now or Utah? I'm in Salt Lake City, Utah, right now. So, I'm in fact, I'm uh, about a block and a half from the LDS temple as we speak. So I'm right downtown. Wow. Okay.
2: Well, fantastic. I'm glad you're here. Can we start talking about God's army? I want to talk about God's army. And I already mentioned it, Brigham city States of grace. And then another movie that you're currently have in, I
1: think, pre-production. Is that the correct term to use? Well, I'm finance. I'm in the financing phase now. So technically it would be the development phase. Oh, okay. The
2: development phase. Great. We want to talk about that as well, but leave enough time to talk about these other movies and how it tracks your spiritual progress. Because I remember I was talking with you on the phone the other day. We've had several phone conversations. You've been very generous with your time, and I appreciate that. But I remember broaching this question with you, I think it was a few days ago, about whether you think that your movies have in any way tracked your spiritual growth and development. And I sort of remember your response was, oh, God, yes.
1: Yeah. I don't know if that's an exact quote, but pretty close. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Right. Thank
2: you. Well, let's start with uh, the very first one that we're going to be talking about. I know it's not your first movie that you made, right. but God's Army back in 2000. Why was it that you decided to make a movie about Mormon missionaries?
1: Well, I'll try to give you the the, the quick run up to it. Is, uh, I had been in, in Los Angeles for about uh, 10 years just um you know, being an, ind- trying to be an independent filmmaker, I, I'd actually made a, a low budget feature called Girl Crazy, which was a, a romantic comedy. And, you know, I was just trying to showcase my, you know, my abilities as a, as a writer, as a director, as an actor. And, um, but, uh, and so and so I made a film, you know, I, I wrote it, I raised the money and the, the entire budget of the film, and I shot it on film was, uh, was $55,000. So that uh, it wasn't, A lot of money but uh for you know a recent college graduate young married man with a with a kid you know I was scraping together everything I had to um to make the film but it had been like five years of of just risk and hard work and basically you know I was having to carry the whole load myself my my wife at the time Gwen she was amazing amazingly helpful but it was uh you know it was a burden and by the time i had finally finished it and i was able to arrange distribution sold it to hbo and cinemax and uh um and uh but at the end what i realized was it was just uh it was 5 years of my life that i had spent making something that was ultimately disposable it was you know it was basically it was trivial it was it was fun it was funny there was there were things i'm you know it's my it was my first film so there's a lot of uh, every you know so many mistakes, so many things I learned from that film but I was uh, but what I realized was that I had spent all I'd risked all of that. I had spent so much time but in the end after five years of my life, um, I'd made something that people would watch and chuckle you know and then forget about it within 30 minutes and I just that that is not you know what I want uh, what I want my life to be. And also at the time I had you know I, I was LDS. I was a, uh, I was a returned missionary. Uh, I was very ambitious though. I I really, really wanted to be a filmmaker. And, uh, and so I just went after that 100%. And I just found myself going down a path that I didn't, I wasn't um, happy with. And in fact, I I shared with you briefly that when I was uh, meeting with a distributor on the film, uh, after, of course, the film's finished and I was delivering it saying, Hey, let's, let's find a place where we can sell this and uh you know he was a hollywood producer you know distributor salesman kind of guy and he was just uh, uh sitting in his office and uh oh and by the way he had just finished snorting a whole bunch of cocaine <laughs> and uh, in the next room they were cutting you know porn for hotel rooms and uh for distribution in hotel um, um rooms i hope not Marriott. and uh And so he's talking to me and he goes, Oh, I love the film. You know, it's it's a great title. And, you know, I can sell this all over. What you got to do is you got to go in and every seven or eight minutes, we got to have some nudity. And uh, so what I want you to do is just, just go back, you know, spend four or five days and just shoot some nudities that we can cut in. We're going to sell this thing everywhere. And I was sitting across the desk from this guy and it was just one of those uh, moments, you know, where I realized what, where am I, what am I doing? And what am I doing with my life? What am I, this is not, who I want to be. Um, and by the way, I don't necessarily have an issue with, you know, I, I feel like, you know, as far as language and, and nudity and violence, I mean, they're, um, they're, they're all tools. So I'm not being like prudish about this or anything at all. I feel like, you know, there are cases, uh, I was just, just, uh, Right, you know, like Holocaust films, you've got nudity where they're stripping down the guards. I mean, stripping down the prisoners. And I mean, so I don't feel like anything is off limits if done in the right way. So it's not about that. But it was just about me being in this place at the same time, thinking about how much time I had put into this. And uh, and who was I? And so I walked out of the. I told him, no, I wasn't going to do it. And I walked out of the office and I just thought I've got to figure my life out because this is, you know, I can't spend my life making these kind of movies that don't mean anything and, uh, and that's when I, I, I thought, you know what, I gotta, gotta get my act together. And so I started thinking about, you know, giving up film, going and being a teacher, whatever. And then one day um, uh, I was, uh, and that was, that was kind of in my heart. I used to call that my Abrahamic sacrifice where I was ready to just give it all up. You know, it was like whatever God wanted me to do. Um, and so on, uh, I used to live right next to Warner Brothers in uh, Burbank. And right next to it, I could step out and throw a golf ball over the wall if I felt like it, but uh, which I never did. I should have done that. Uh, Maybe I'll have to go back and do that sometime. (laughs) But I uh, I was there. I was barbecuing for my family. We had a tiny little apartment and uh, I had the Friday L.A. Times spread out where every Friday I would read their movie reviews because that was Friday. You know, all the new movies would open. All the reviews were there. And I was reading all this stuff and I was, you know, I was a little frustrated because I wanted to be a filmmaker, but I was looking at these movies. And, and at that time, this is like the, the uh, l- mid late 1990s. Um, there was, you know, a new movie coming out from, uh, for the, for the black community and a new movie coming out for for the gay community and a new movie coming out for the Indian community. And uh, I was seeing all this and, I and I actually was, you know, Doing a little personal rant where I was saying, "Well, why can't Mormons have their own movies?" It's like we've got 12 million Mormons. Why can't we have our own movies? And that's when it it hit me, and uh, I just kind of sat down, let my burgers burn, and I was, and I realized, why can't we have? And and that's when I just took off. I was. Uh, people ask me a lot of times if uh, if I meant to, if I was trying to create a Mormon cinema, and I absolutely was from that from that moment when I realized oh my gosh, why can't we have our own cinema? Mormons love movies. Um, but nobody's making movies for them, you know, and every time somebody depicts a Mormon in a TV show or a movie, it's totally off. It's, it's a complete misrepresentation. And, uh, even if it's, uh, relatively benign or positive, they still don't get it right, you know? And so that was something that drove me as well. It was like, it was time for us to start telling our own stories and, and, uh, so that was, the, that was my mission for the next, uh, and it, I don't think it was at all coincidental, but it took me five years to get, um, to get God's army financed and, and shot and, uh, and made. But uh, that was one of the things that drove me was, you know, feeling like Mormons have to tell their own stories or other people will, and they're not going to tell them right. And I still think to this day, that's a problem for, uh, for the Mormon people. Uh, they need to be telling their own stories. They need better filmmakers. And uh, um, and uh, but that that's that's what drove me to uh, to make God's army. And uh, yeah, so I just started hitting the road, raising money, pulling it together. Oh, and then uh, the the key to that, I think, was after realizing Mormons can have their own cinema. And I have just spent most of my life up to that point learning how to do this um, thinking, what kind of story could I tell? And, and after toying around with a few ideas, I finally realized, you know, nobody has told a real story about what it's like to be an LDS missionary. And that's what I had been. That was a very formative period of my life. And so I thought, I'm going to tell my story and not so much the story of Mormon missionaries, but I, and and in God's army, uh, and you've seen it recently. So basically what I did was I took my own story and I divided it up among these different missionaries. So in some ways, um, I was Elder Allen, the main character, the, the young kid whose uh, father stepfather had turned out to be a child molester, that was my story. And, uh, and then uh, the, the elder, the, the, the black elder who has the experience in uh, Carthage jail, that was my experience. And, um, and then of course, a lot of me came out in the character that I, I played and uh, and throughout, so so that's where it came from, and uh, so in a lot of ways, when people ask me, and I was challenged afterwards whether people thought that I had the right to tell that story. You know, a, a lot of people were like, "Well, you know, did you have permission from the church to to tell this story?" And my from the beginning, my response, my was like, "What? Why would I need permission to tell my own story?" And. Uh, yeah so that 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 was a very long answer to your very short question.
0: If I just can just jump in for two seconds, I won't do that a whole lot tonight. but I, I just want to say when you when you said Mormonism is never really represented accurately and you set about to do that as as somebody who was really excited about God's army and went to see it in the theater, um, I agree. I think you represented the essence of Mormonism in that story really well. And I just want to say that like you did. Do what no one else had done up to that point, and maybe from there on anyway.
1: Wow, thanks.
2: Yeah, and I remember when I watched it the first time, as well as more recently, that it really captured a lot of my mission as well, up to and including this uh, fellow missionary who was having a real tough time. Uh, he was from Southern California, not Kansas. And He really missed his girlfriend. He really wanted to go home. And the other three missionaries, including me in the district, we were trying to talk him out of it and it didn't work. He went home. Maybe we needed to have you write our lines for us. (laughs) At least because that happens twice in in God's army. One, you talk out of it and he stays. And the other one, you try and talk out of it and he goes. And there's a whole uh, cast of characters with all these different aspects of Mormonism. You've got Elder Dalton, which is your role, which is the very uh, devout, work hard. Let's do some good, which is your, your catchphrase, I think. Uh, nice. Let's do some good. And then there are other uh, missionaries who have a whole host of different backgrounds and issues. And then there's one, Elder Kinniker, I believe it is, who is studying anti-Mormon literature while he's on his mission. And he drops hints about it throughout. Everybody's getting kind of uh, fed up with him. And then it comes to a uh, situation where your character finally has it and gets upset with him. By the way, you're playing a 29-year-old missionary in this movie. And I understand that uh, that was a stretch in the sense of 29 is about as old as you can be and go on a mission, I think. Right. But you were still older than that even.
1: Right. Yeah, I was in real life. I was 35, so.
2: 35 playing 29, but you did a great job. And I'm not just saying that, actually. I thought I'd have a tough time faulting anybody's acting in this movie. I thought it was all very good and very well done. But I want to come to this point to talk about you and your character and how it relates to your development, because he starts uh, talking very strongly to Elder Pinnaker about what Elder Dalton, your character, thinks about his involvement in the anti-Mormon literature. And we have a clip of that if we can play it. By the way, can I just say up front, for the good folks at YouTube, Richard Dutcher is the director and owner. This is his film. He owns all the rights to this film. So playing it here should not offend any YouTube censor personalities
1: at all. I own the copyrights.
2: Okay. We we shouldn't
0: get in any trouble, right? So here we go.
4: Hey, did you guys know that uh, Joseph Smith gave four different accounts of the first vision? Did you? Now, why don't you put that stuff away, man? That's really starting to get on my nerves. All right. just thought you might want to learn about your own religion.
0: <clears throat> he gave different accounts because he was talking to different audiences, different circumstances.
4: Hmm.
5: Well, that must be why the first presidency never even mentioned that God and Jesus Christ appeared until after the 1900s. It's not true. It says it right
1: here. Look, it's not true. Orson Pratt and John Taylor both taught it, repeatedly. Why don't you look it up in our books for a change?
0: How many lies do you have to find in there before you're going to get it? Just forget it, okay? No, I'm not going to forget it. I mean, look look at this stuff. I mean, who are these people? Don't they have anything better to do with their time? I mean, we got, we got drugs, disease, people living out on the street, and these people spend their time trying to tear down other people's faith. Doesn't that, doesn't that give you a clue?
2: Okay. So what I wanted to ask you is how, first off, when I see that, I recognize that the person who wrote this is a person who is familiar enough with LDS history, and this is 22 years ago, to know that there are four accounts of the first vision and that that can raise an issue for certain people and also be familiar with typical apologetic responses to that, which you articulate. Right. How much did that reflect your Feelings at the time, and do you still feel the same way today?
1: Oh, it very much reflected my uh, my feelings at the time. I I I was very uh, I I was always going down those, you know, exploring what was available and stuff. But there's a big difference that uh, that I I this came home to me recently here when I'm in Salt Lake City. Of course, I see young Mormon missionaries all the time, and you'd think, you know, especially with my history. And um, the fact that I, you know, I look back on my years as a missionary as a, as a very positive and necessary part of my own spiritual growth. Um, And yet I look at these young guys um, and I, I'm actually looking at them thinking, how, why are you here? How can you be here? Um, And, uh, and that may seem, you know, strange considering my history, but you got to remember, I, you know, I was a missionary in 1984 to 1986. And at that time, there was, I mean, yeah, there was stuff if you really sought it out. There's no internet. We didn't have the internet. We didn't have, uh, you know, so we had, even even in church books, there wasn't, you know, a, a breadth of material available. So New Mormon history hadn't really gotten, it was just barely, you know, getting moving. So there was so, there was such, compared to what we have today, there was so little
2: yeah. And I was saying, it's not only just barely moving at that time, it was just recently got shut down Yeah, with Leonard Arrington. So, yeah. And you're, you're very li- restricted in what you're able to read on your mission and still be in conformance with the mission rules.
1: Yeah, exactly. And of course I was reading before and after my mission, I would, you know, I've, cause it was something that was interesting to me. I was always very interested in the, in Mormon origins. And so I, uh, and I always wanted to make a film about Joseph Smith someday. So I was always, you know, eager to read whatever I could find about Joseph Smith pro or con. And, um, and so, so, but at the time, you know, what did we have? We had, uh, a marvelous work and a wonder that was like, you know, that, you know, fired us all up as missionaries and, you know, it's like, boy, that makes an argument for Mormonism. And how, how do you counter that? You know? And, and, um, but as far as the anti-Mormon stuff, you really had to seek it out. And, um, and so it's not like it is today, you know, and I, I do wonder when I see these young guys out there, I'm like, and this is the internet generation, you know, it's like they grow up, they've grown up with the internet their entire lives. And, uh, it strikes me as very odd. You know, I, I really do want to sit down and, and in a very kind way, say, have you never Googled Joseph Smith? Have you never, have you never really looked into Joseph Smith, uh, polygamy Joseph? Have you never looked into any of that stuff? Um, and, uh, I've yet to do that though. It's, uh, but, but the point being, your question was, is like, yeah, I, I was, uh, um, I was quite the apologist when I, in the period when I made God's army and I thought, and I, I pretty much, I, I was pretty good at it. You could have asked me anything and I could have given you a good, you know, reason why it really wasn't a problem. I mean, even if you go down to, you know, Joseph Smith having, uh, um, having a, a relationship with, uh, Orson Hyde's wife, I could have, you know, that was one that threw me, by the way, it was like, it took me a while to work out how I could possibly justify that one. But, um, but that's how, that's how uh, committed of an apologist I was. I I even had a good answer for that one. So, um, but the way, the the way I describe it now, and I, I don't want to get off on this, but I think a great way is what really occurred to me after, in retrospect, is and the way a lot of us approach, a lot of uh, Mormons, especially apologists, approach these Mormon issues is uh, I think of it like a forest where you look at, you know, there are individual trees, and one tree is the blacks and the priesthood, one tree is is the uh, the gender issues, one, one tree is um, polygamy, one tree, and it goes on and on. And and the first vision, and the and the priesthood being restored or not, and the there's the a whole
0: spirit. forest, isn't there?
1: Exactly, and you can take any one of those trees. And you can argue it to death and you can argue it to the point where, you know, you can get to the, if you're a good, you know, if you're a good debater, if you're a good attorney, you can argue it to the point where you're like, OK, we've we've uh, settled this that it's like, well, you could go this way or you could go that way. Now let's move on to the next tree. And then you can spend a whole, you know, you can spend, you know, another, you know, three weeks arguing about that tree and you get to the same point when eventually it's like you throw up your hands and it's like, well, we've. We've confused the issue enough and brought in everything. And so let's just move on to another tree. But eventually when you step back and you look at the whole forest, there's only one answer that answers all of, the, all the, and that is, it's just not true. And so once you, once that hits, you realize that, that uh, you were lost in the individual trees. If that, if that makes any sense, if that is clear.
2: Oh, absolutely.
1: Now, when I watch this
2: movie, as I said, I I saw it reflecting uh, extremely accurately a lot of my experience on my mission. And I see in it not only myself, but other missionaries that I knew. So it was surprising to me when you told me that not all Mormons were were thrilled with this movie, (laughs) especially since it seems so faith promoting. I mean, you are your character, Elder Dalton is the one who's the faithful missionary. We just saw part of it there. And he's the one who at the end gets the divine imprimatur of authority and blessing from God by being the one who does a priesthood blessing on Benny, who's just gotten the crap kicked out of him. And also even before that has difficulty walking. He walks with a brace and you heal him and he gets up and he walks. So it's very clear to me what the message was and who was being favored as far as their missionary attitude. And that was Elder Dalton but not all Mormons saw it as faith-promoting, is that right?
1: Oh yeah, There's, uh, I, I was so confused when I came out. When I, of course, when I, when I had finished the film, nobody even in Utah knew I'd made it. It was just a little independent movie I made down in Los Angeles. Most of the cast and crew were not LDS at all. Um, so very few people knew that I, was, that I had made this film. And uh, I just came up, I started, you know, I created my little distribution company, started booking it into theaters, and uh you know started placing trailers and posters in the theaters and put it out um so it kind of just i kind of just sprang it on the mormon culture and uh, i'm sure that included leadership who were like what the hell is going on suddenly there's a movie in uh in the movie the actual real movie theaters that uh that are that's about mormons
2: i muted myself and you're talking about the church leaders all of a sudden there's a movie and nobody asked us for permission
1: <laughs> exactly exactly and uh so there was quite a, you know, at the beginning I would get that question all the time because I would do screenings, whether it was for the press or for, um, just, you know, try to get some people to come see it. So the word would spread. And so I would do pre-release screenings. And then even after I was opening it, we would, we slowly rolled it out. So it went, you know, all across the country and into Mexico and Canada, but I would do, I would go to the theaters to answer questions about the film, you know, afterwards, do a little Q and a, and, uh, and people were so confused when that I mean, it was like they didn't know if they should like it if they they didn't even know if they should be in the theater watching it because they uh, In fact, one of my favorite stories of my entire career was when uh, the trailer had begun playing in theaters in Utah. And it was still maybe three or four weeks before the movie was going to open. And I was at uh, Jordan Commons. I would go. I was, you know, I was carrying the prints of the movie to the theater i was taking posters to the theater myself you know i was hitting all the movie theater driving all over utah doing this um a little distribution company of like three of us and uh and uh so when i was in the theater and i knew that the trailer was playing in front of a certain movie i would go in and watch it right so i go into to jordan commons it's the big theater so it's like you know 600 people and I don't know what they're watching. Some pop, some Hollywood, you know, popular movie, probably Lord of the Rings or something. And I'm uh, just at the bottom, and so I can, I'm, I'm right, you know, at the entrance before you walk up and go into the auditorium. So I can look back and pretty much see the whole place. And I see this woman. She's kind of a heavy set woman, um, middle aged, and she's got, you know, like a couple of popcorns and a drink in her hand, and she's trying to make her way across the row into the center. So there's all these people that are scooting back to give her space. And the trailer for God's army comes up just as she starts to walk into the aisle. And as she gets like maybe four people in suddenly elder Allen in the trailer comes up and they refer to him as elder. And she turns and looks at this. It was almost like her, her head snapped, you know, and she just, boom, her head went to the screen and she froze right there. And it was a long trailer. I had to get special permission to play it. It was like three minutes long. And uh, you, most of them are like two to two and a half the whole time she did not move. I mean, she was planted just staring at this movie screen. Like aliens had just landed and the people around her were like trying to, you know, scoot around to, to see her. And uh, actually that's when I knew, I would known the whole time that this movie was going to work. But as soon as I saw that, I was like, this movie is going to work. <laughs> um, but then, yeah, the the response after that was amazing where it was. Like, but mostly I would usually get people saying, did you ask the church? Did you ask permission to to make this film? And I would get people saying, what is the how does the church feel about this? And uh, I was the first few times that happened. I was very confused because, again, like I said, I didn't feel like I needed permission to tell my own story. Um, and that's how I would answer. And I would just kind of jumble around. But then one time at a screening uh and it was important. It was an important little moment in the history of the film because uh, Elder David B. Haight's wife had come to that screening. And I knew when she was there. I'd met her briefly. But, you know, they said, oh, come meet Elder Haight's wife. And so I did. Really sweet lady. And so she and her friends were watching the film. And then afterwards in the Q&A, someone brought up the same question. You know, it was like, how does the church feel about this? And for the first time, I, you know, I answered in this way, which is how I always answered afterwards. I said, well, you're the church. How do you feel about it? And and uh, Sister Haight um, started clapping and then everyone turned. And then it was like it was almost like a little seal of approval. And uh, that made me happy, you know, because it was like, great. You know, it's like, great. I, I was thinking these guys must get tired of everyone running to them with asking permission for things. But, uh, but there was that. But I think uh, maybe what you'd be most interested in is what I thought I was going to catch hell over was, I thought for sure, bringing up the anti-Mormon issues, bringing up the blacks and the priesthood issue, bringing up uh, that kind of stuff. In fact, I thought they were going to run me out of town on a rail because of the line where Elder Kinniger, the, the one who's who's reading the anti-Mormon literature, there's a scene late at night where the young, fresh, new missionary walks in and he sees Kinniger at the kitchen table with his head down, and he's been reading his stuff. And he says, um, "What if it's? Oh, what's going on, Maven?
2: Oh, she's just waiting for you to finish her story, oh, and then she's going to add something."
4: I was muted. I was going to say I have that scene if you want to play it. Um, oh, the but... one about Ooh.
2: him with his head down.
4: Um, the what? The bus station scene. Oh where... no, no,
1: that's not it. Yeah,
2: no, it's the one, the one with Maven. his head down in the apartment. It's okay. I didn't ask you oh. to to get this okay. one, Maven. No problem. But um, thank you. But yeah, where he's got his head down on the desk because the weight of it is just so heavy on Elder Kinnicker. Right. and then he says, uh, he,
1: he says, says, "Damn them!" Yeah, he it's says, "What true? if it's not? What if it's not true? What if? What if they know?" He's talking about the apostles, you know, and the prophets, and he says, "What if they know it's not true and uh, and they're lying to us?" And he says, "Damn them!" You know, if it's not true, damn them to hell. And I thought, you know, that's gonna—they're gonna fry me over this one. Nobody. Not in all the screenings I ever had anywhere in North America did I ever have anybody mention that. Nobody had a problem with that. What they had a problem with was me showing a missionary sitting on the toilet. Because there's a little joke where the missionaries are playing pranks on each other. And they would burst in while the missionary's on the toilet and take a picture of him. They just thought that was funny, which is the kind of stuff that missionaries do, by the way. And no full frontal nudity, by the way. <laughs> no, no nudity. They're their long white shirts. You know, you know, very chastely covered everything. Um, <laughs> and it was funny, um, but they had an issue with that, and uh, they had an issue with me um, showing ordinances on the screen. Like they had a, they had a big issue with a lot of people had a big issue with me showing the the anointing of the sick and the and the prayer. You know, the healing prayer. Um. And even, you know, showing the baptism. You see, at the time, it's people don't really understand this now, but in the year 2000, sounds like I'm talking about the 1900s. I basically am. um, Mormons didn't have that. It was, you know, it was God's army. The first time they saw anything other than an institutional um, film about Mormons, really. You know, I mean, anything that was made by Mormons and it was, you know, that was made for Mormons, certainly. And so they were not used at all to seeing a baptism um later I, I really laid it on laid it on with uh brigham city but uh um so they were shocked by that you know they just didn't know what to make of that and it's like they were watching it think they didn't know if they were watching something good or bad and they were waiting for some leader to tell them whether it was right or wrong and uh, and nobody ever did so
2: well the interesting thing another interesting thing and I'm sorry, I know we're spending a lot of time on this. We'll probably have to give a little bit of short shrift maybe to Brigham City. I apologize in advance. But every missionary, everybody who's been on a mission knows that that's what a mission is like. Right. And they recognize those people. Right. But I had done an interview, I think it was a couple of years ago now, with John Williams, who had, uh, it's a different John Williams, not the composer. Yeah. But he was a missionary and he'd written a book and he talked about this unwritten rule that we have in Mormonism is that return missionaries are never to say anything about their mission, except for faith, promoting things. They're never to say anything that happened that was negative or not positive.
1: Right. And I
2: think that you broke that rule with God's army. <laughs> yeah.
1: There was a, a, a screening, a very memorable experience where after one of the screenings, one of the very early screenings, um, this woman came up to me and uh, she was very distressed. She, it was like she had some. She was very troubled by something, and so I, you know, I stepped aside so I could talk to her because I didn't know if, you know, we both knew someone who had died or, you know, I didn't know what was going on. But it was like I, I wanted to give her some attention because she was in some distress. And then she told me that she had come to see the movie and she had brought her two sons, one who was a recently returned missionary, and then one who was just about to go, and. Again, I'm not seeing a problem. And then she says, and the the older son had, after the screening, had said that this was just like his mission, that it was just, this is what a mission is like. And he was enthusiastic. And again, I'm not seeing what the problem is. (laughs) And then she says to me, um, she says she wished she hadn't brought her younger son because now he might not want to go. And I didn't know what to make of that. You know, to me, it was like, what it took, I had to process that. It was like, so basically... They don't want the guy who's about to give two years of his life to something to know what he's actually about to go do. Um, it was wild. It was strange. And uh, I comforted her as best as I could, but I, uh, I doubt she saw States of Grace. Um,
2: no. Probably not. Probably no. but, it, but it points up this very interesting aspect of Mormonism that all young men, ever since I joined the church in 79 and before then, are encouraged strongly to go on a mission. Yeah, to, nowadays they're saying they don't even have the agency to choose to go on a mission. Cause they already made that decision when they got baptized. So they're really trying to force people down the cattle chute into the mission field. Wow. And yet Mormons who have not been on a mission have no idea what a mission is like.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, good. They should they should see my two films, my two missionary films and the one I'm getting ready to make. So that'll oh, absolutely. Okay. Moving on,
2: moving on. Very good. Brigham city. Fantastic movie. It comes out the next year. Right, 2001.
1: Yeah, and, I was uh, so eager to, I mean, as soon as God's Army worked and, you know, the newspaper, I mean, it was, uh, in fact, for the year 2000, it was the fourth of all movies, Hollywood movies, it was the fourth most profitable movie of the year. So, you know, taking the, the budget, because it, you know, as an independent film, uh, it, you know, it made um, So that's percentage-wise with the budget? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Percentage of budget to to profit, you know, for it sure. was it was One of the most profitable films of all films made that year, um, including anything that my former neighbors Warner Brothers had made. So uh, I was happy about that. They still didn't call me and ask me to work for them. But, you know, that's how it goes. Um,
2: So we we get to Brigham City. and Once again, I'm sorry, we're going to have to skip a little bit about the concept and how you got that. And I apologize. But uh, Brigham City. uh, it's a different movie in some ways. In some ways, it revisits some of the themes. It is an absolute thriller. It's a solid thriller. Who done it? Mystery, serial killer. Gotta find him. Uh, but that wasn't enough for you.
1: No. In fact, I uh, uh, I had some people who were critical of the film because of the mystery elements. They said, you know, it wasn't uh, it wasn't the best mystery movie. And, and I said, well, it wasn't a, it, it, I mean, it was a spiritual drama. I was just disguising it as a murder mystery. So, uh, neener, neener, <laughs> you
2: know, I've- look, I, I may not be the sharpest tool in the box, but I did not see that coming and you, no, you good. cloaked it so carefully and watching it more recently. Cause I know the answer, you know, I know yeah. who did it. And I'm just going,
1: well, don't give it away. Are- we still have some, maybe we still have some people that haven't seen it. So. Okay.
2: So we won't do the, um, uh, spoiler, don't do this uh, Just masterfully, absolutely masterfully, even at the end on the second watching, I thought he was going to, you know, somewhere else. Oh, I cool. had no idea. I thought it was that that gal's boyfriend.
1: Cool. Well, I uh, um, as just speaking as a movie maker now, it's like I, I love the the when I was conceiving the film, it was the last scene that it was, when I hit the, the, the last scene, I was like, oh. I got to make this movie. But the other scene that I really love in the film was uh, when, and I'll just speak generically to not spoil anything, but the, when the guy's putting together the gun at the table and I, uh, as I was, I, I still remember just writing and I was just delighted by, um, you know, as I was writing this scene, because I was like, this is going to be so good. And that's one, when, as a, when I would visit theaters, when the film was playing, I just loved stepping into the theater and watching people watch that, that scene and watching, I mean, it's a, it's a real thrill for a filmmaker when you see the effect that your film's having on an audience, whether they're laughing or crying. Um, And in that case, you know, there, when I actually saw people um, on the edge of their seats, it was like, not just, you know, metaphorically speaking, but they were actually on the edge of their seats. And I was, you know, as a filmmaker, I'm just like, yes, yes. Um, So anyway, I, I, yeah, I love the film. So you've got a
2: sheriff. Was it a sheriff or chief of police? It was a sheriff. A sheriff who is also the bishop in the town. So he has to fulfill both those roles. And it deals with how you struggle with that line, which members are only too anxious to cross and all those things. But, But at the end of it, there's this scene and I let me just be frank with you. I remembered some things about the movie, but the one that really stuck with me was the final scene in the sacrament meeting where the sheriff as the bishop is sitting up there in front of the uh, the congregation and the sacrament is passed right. and there are no words. And of course, in a Mormon sacrament meeting there would not be a lot of talking. Right. But as I watched this, I started looking at my watch and being amazed at the amount of time that's going on in this scene and i i didn't clock it exactly but i wondered if this were perhaps the longest scene with no dialogue in the history of talking movies other than mel brooks silent movie perhaps
1: right oh yeah true he beat me And yeah, yeah. Early, early chaplain because he didn't he didn't want to you know he wouldn't he didn't want to do it either so
2: uh, he was a purist Oh, he did pretty good with it, but you did, you did fantastic. I mean, it was just amazing. And I know that I've talked to other people and that was what they remembered. And I've talked, and this other person who's a friend of mine who watched it again, she said she cried the first time she saw it and she watched it again. She cried again. Yeah.
0: Well, I cry and when and I you had, and you had one of my heroes, Wilfred Brimley in the movie. Oh, um, cool. I, you know, Quaker Oats Oatmeal. It's not just good yeah. for you, but it's the right thing to do. Yeah. How did you manage that
2: anyway, Richard getting Wilfred Brimley that was quite the
1: cool. oh, I, I just paid him um, <laughs> <laughs> oh I was yeah. expecting some yeah. kind of spiritual story you know actors and prostitutes he just paid them um, so but there's a story I'll give you a little bit of trivia there which is uh, is <laughs> I got, a, got a good laugh out of you um. No, 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 no. I'm denying any laughter. (laughs) So uh, just a little bit of trivia um, is uh, I actually wanted William Hurt, the actor, to play the sheriff. And uh, I was going to play the deputy. And then uh, I was trying to get Andy Griffith to play the old guy. And um, but then Andy Griffith uh, responded that he was his his health was just not good and he couldn't do it. And uh, and then I tried to get farnsworth richard farnsworth i don't remember if you remember him he was a great older actor and yes actually
2: and uh, his, man from
1: snowy river yeah, yeah yeah and so his uh he couldn't do it either because of his health and then he actually died before we actually started shooting the film um oh, but the way it broke down with the, the amount of money that i had i couldn't afford william hurt so it was just like two weeks before i was going to start shooting i couldn't get william hurt so it was like well i guess i'm playing the sheriff so who's going to play the deputy and then i thought oh you know, the main guy from God's army, he was, he'll be fantastic. So I hired him. So that's how it all shook down. And, uh, and Wilford was just, uh, yeah, you know, I'd loved him and stuff. And I thought, Oh, he'd be, he'd be perfect. And I was able to, you know, offer him the magic number. And he, and he took the role.
2: He really was absolutely fantastic. It looks like I'm being, uh, reminded by members of the audience that Castaway with Tom Hanks probably had a lot of long silent parts in it too.
1: Oh, good point. (laughs) point. Very good. Oh, we well, have a this, sharp audience, I'll tell you that. I got to tell um, you a little after story, though. You're going to love this. Yeah. So Brimley, you know, you just assume that that uh, when you send an offer to an actor through his agent, you know, and then they always say, well, send us the script. You send the script and then you get an answer back, whether they're, they try to negotiate or whatever. A little bit of negotiation, but then, you know, Wilford said, OK, I'll do it. And so he shows up the first day. I do the obligatory, you know, go see him in his trailer, meet him, talk to him, get to know him. Just very genial conversation. There's a the whole story. We don't have time to go into the whole, you know, Wilfred Brimley on the set of Brigham city stories, but it was epic. Um, <laughs> but after he's written, re- you know, he gets his scenes for the day. It's like, okay, he's going to do these scenes, these scenes. And then he comes out of his trailer, you know, after we've had our discussion, I go off, I'm starting to get ready to shoot the scene Suddenly he comes out of his trailer and uh, I don't know if I should use, I can't use the language that he used, but uh, um, you could say a word that rhymes. The, the Okay. The, the dog damn. Okay. He said, he came out and he said, is this a goddamn damn Mormon movie? <laughs> <laughs> he hadn't yes even, read <laughs> he even read the script of the movie that he had agreed to be in. And so uh, the rest of the time he was there, he was just cantankerous. And, uh, and he and I just, uh, we, we never had Thanksgiving dinner together after that. So um, <laughs> but, but he, was, uh, he was brilliant in, in that part. He, he really, you know, he, we had our issues as far as actor and director go. But um, um, as I said, when he passed away, it was like, I'm, I'm really, I'll always be grateful that he played that part because he nailed it. He just did a great job.
2: I think he yeah. did too. Is that what cost you to rewrite the script so he met an early demise?
1: <laughs> oh, my gosh. We're going to have to do a show. We're going to have to do a show. That's just nice Wilfred Brimley. Just Wilford Brimley. <laughs> um, but when he, uh, and I don't want to give the spoilers away anyway, but what well, would you say he has a death scene. And again, he still didn't read the script, so he didn't read his death scene until the day that he was supposed to die. and uh, And then he's angry with me because he's telling me that he would not you know that he would not die. He would not die this way, and uh, um, you know nobody could sneak up on him, and and blah blah blah. And um, and so I just finally had to say, no, Wilfred, you're right. You, nobody could sneak up on you, but but the character that you're playing, he can sneak up on him. And uh, it was just it was just uh, a struggle the whole way. But that's not what we're here to talk about. So let's uh, let's get moving. Anyway, it's fun. We should do it. <laughs> someday maybe someone will do a movie about the making of that movie because that was uh, entertaining (laughs) stuff.
2: Uh, Can I surprise you with a question I haven't asked you before? Sure. Um, It does strike me about the sheriff, the character that you play, and his unwillingness to accept that there may be a dangerous element in his town. Right. And he says there's never been a murder here.
1: Right.
2: And not only does he do the big thing that we know about involving a background check and failing to do it. Right. But also, I started seeing that uh, this character's uh, tunnel vision made it so the character could not recognize the fact that the two girls who, before the movie starts, we find out about them in retrospect, people talking about them, that there's been one girl who had a I don't know, maybe suspicious fall from a mountain while she's hiking, right? Or maybe not suspicious. Who knows? People do fall while they're hiking. And then another girl who has disappeared and the story circulated that she ran off to California and away from her family, she's never made contact, not even a postcard, right? And the FBI agent points that out to your character later on at how suspicious it is. She can see that this is suspicious and it's definitely a sign of foul play for someone to disappear completely like that. But your character refuses to believe that at least at the inception in favor of there's never been a murder here. And it struck me that in some ways that may be what, well, all human beings do. We're going to fit things. We're going to ignore the things that, uh, contradict our theories of the way things should be, or maybe challenge our comfort zone. Right. But it did also strike me that maybe this has some special application, uh, to members of the church, that things happen that they know about, that they're going to interpret them in a safe way. So it doesn't challenge their preconceptions and challenge their, their feelings of safety.
1: What right. do you think of that? And bury their heads in the sand and stuff. It's like, yeah, yeah, very much, very much. So it was, uh, um, later after when I was editing my film Falling that uh I uh I realized I realized what, you know, a common theme that runs through almost all of my work. And uh and that is I'm just I, I didn't really realize it until several films in, but I realized that almost everything I all the serious work that I do um really uh focuses on it's kind of a an examination or a meditation on this loss of innocence, you know, that that we all experience you know it's and to me for whatever reason it's just been um it's something that really um affects me and so uh i i did a thing there's a scene in brigham city which is uh, um, i'm going to analyze my own films here for a second but the reason that stuck out for me was when i was editing my film falling there was a scene that uh, I was having some trouble figuring out how I was going to you know, wrap up the ending. It wasn't quite working. And as I was just zipping through the movie, um, I, I noticed this scene where in Falling, there's a little boy on, in Hollywood Boulevard who and Hollywood in that film is a very grimy place, which it really is. And uh, but he is walking past the scene where somebody has jumped off of a building, committed suicide, and a reporter grabs him and pulls him up to the the police line so that he can see the body and that they can get his shocked expression on camera and uh uh it's a you know it's a heartbreaking scene but as i was looking at that scene in falling i realized in brigham city i had almost the exact same shot where instead of a little boy it was a little girl and it was at the gazebo and she's there and she's watching as they're pulling the one of the murder victims out from under the gazebo. And it's the same thing where it's this little kid looking at what was going on in the adult world. And when I saw that and I made that connection, I was like, why did I, why did I do this same thing in two different movies? And suddenly it hit me and then it started to fall into place. And not only did it help illuminate for me, some of what all of my previous films had been about, but it helped me finish falling. Cause I then realized, Oh, this is what i'm this is what this movie is about, and so I just dove in and was able to finish that. so it's something that concerns me and in, in Brigham City it's really instead of just that little girl, it's the whole community is having a uh, a loss of innocence and if you notice even in the Sunday school um, lesson that's given, they uh, in in the movie the the woman's talking about you know Adam and Eve and uh, and just talking about that loss of innocence and And uh, even going into the going so far as they talk a little bit about gullibility and being wise as serpents and and harmless as doves, uh, which is a a biblical phrase that I love. And uh, yeah, so so uh,
2: you see, I did. I saw the movie recently. I saw that scene. I did not even put that together. And this is one of the things that makes your movie so valuable and above the average kind of movie which is where you deal with these, uh, well, the human condition Mm -hmm. and eternal themes that resonate. And so I can continue to see things in it as I watch it. And the more I watch it, the more I see. And then I missed this. And I'm just very, very impressed by all the work that you put into your movies. And I think it was just earlier today. I thought, you know, for all the work that you or anyone, but let's just talk about you put into a movie for me just to watch it when it came out, uh, 20 years ago and that be it seems like short changing it
1: on well, my end. Well, well, it's, that's, that's a great compliment. Thanks. I mean, it, to me, it's an honor to let people are still watching it, you know, cause it's uh, well, those, those three movies that we're talking about today, States of grace and, and Brigham city and, and God's army, they're all on Amazon um, or at least they're available on Amazon and, uh, you know, so I, you know, I see that, you know, people are watching them now and, and that, uh, that means a lot to me, you know, again, it's like when, when we talked about my very first film, how, you know, I just, I made a film and it, but I, I knew that it was trivial. I knew that it was, you know, it, it was disposable. And uh, these three films aren't, you know, and I know that they're still touching people. I still get, you know, messages from people that, that just barely now discover the films after all this time and, and it, and they're moved by them. A lot of times, it's it's ex Mormons who watch them and say they get confused because it's like I almost want to be Mormon again. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, um, but just talking about uh, um, oh, and then for the I mean the 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 movie that I'm doing now, the script. I just had a a, a writer friend. I always like to share my scripts with with my uh, trusted, very trusted um, writers uh, who can give good feedback. And, um, and the movie just, he's a, he's a, he's a Mormon movie just angered him. He was, he's never been angry at me before, but he was angry. And, uh, and he was saying this movie should never be made. And he was going, and then the next day I got a text from him apologizing. And saying, despite my reaction, um, I haven't, that movie made me think more about my life and my time as a missionary than I ever have. And he says, oh, you know, I want to talk once we, you know, once I've been able to process this. And so it's, you know, I so said, that's the kind of work I want to do. Wow. You know, I, yeah. I want to make films that uh, John Cassavetes is a great independent. He's one of the fathers of American independent filmmaking. He, he talked when he said something about, he goes, if I made a movie like uh, empire strikes back, I think he was using as the example, he said, I'd be embarrassed. He said, I'd be ashamed. You know, I don't quite feel that extreme about it, but. Um, I I'm quite fond of that movie but anyway he was saying you know he didn't want to make popular movies he wanted he says I want to make a movie that you know people are going to walk out of people are going to hate um but it's never going to leave them because you know they're going to hate it so much they're not going to be able to let go they'll be they'll be vacuuming their floors 5 years later thinking about that movie he goes I would rather have that than make something that's just disposable and I totally totally understand that you know it's like I uh, the way I look at it now is you know, I'm not a young man anymore. I've only got, you know, how many more films am I going to get to make and uh, how much more impact am I going to be able to have on our, our culture, on on my own children, on 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 the world that my children are going to live in. And, you know, I'm not going to, I don't want to do any more girl crazies or evil angels or boys at the bar. I want to do, you know, I want to do things that uh, if they're the last film I make, it's uh, it'll be worth it, you know?
2: Yeah, it seems like Steven Spielberg came to that point in his career as well. Hmm. Just looking back on his, you know, his movies. But regardless of that, I'm sorry, we've got to go into now States of Grace as time is slipping away. But I do want to cover this definitely, and then we'll get. To I, I, I,
1: I, I, I warn you that I can talk. I, I warned you that I can. You get me talking about movies, and I can go on. So Good all stuff. right, States of Grace, let's do it.
2: Yes, because I'm watching States of Grace. Now, I had watched it before, right? So I I watched um, God's Army, and then I watched States of Grace a a number of years later, five, six years later. And I see that it's about missionaries, right? But I never make any connection between the first movie and the second movie. Now, when I watch it, it's called States of Grace, not God's Army 2. That's when I watched it on a, a DVD, I'm sure. And when I'm watching it now, Just a couple days after watching God's Army, I'm aware because I watched them. I watched the in in the in the order we're discussing them. I'd watched Brigham City and I saw that you had brought on some actors that you had used in God's Army to play different roles. Uh, There are at least two of them. Well, three, if we count you. And so I knew that that was something that you did. You had certain actors that you would go back to. And then I see some of those actors in this movie again. The first one was oh, the mission president.
1: Dalton, my character didn't return because you know,
2: right? He was, there was that problem.
1: He was he was gone.
2: Yeah. Yes, he was gone. Yeah. <laughs> I watching this, and it's the mission president, right? And I and I think I said out loud, uh, "Oh, they got the same guy to play the mission president here because I remembered him." And uh, then. I see this blonde haired guy who is the, the practical Joker in the first one. He's kind of doing the same thing. And I thought, Oh, well, they got that guy back too. And then finally they got uh, Oh, the black missionary, the one you said about Carthage. And then I said, well, they got the same guy back too. He's a missionary too. And then he introduces himself in the movie to somebody else and says, I'm elder banks. And I said, no, wait a second. This is the same character. These are all the same people. This is the same mission. This must be after And not long after, because it has to be within two years of the, because that's how long a mission is of the events in God's army. And all of a sudden I went, Oh my gosh, this is just, okay. These are the, these are the same people. And I, I finally figured it out, but it did raise the question for me. Why is it that you went back to the same well of missionaries and telling their stories? What was it that you felt you had not said in God's army that you felt still needed to be said in States of Grace?
1: Oh boy, that's a great question because I, uh, I never, I never thought I'd make a sequel um, and it was nothing. I I don't have anything necessarily against them. I just feel like, you know, usually they're just a cash grab, you know, it's just capitalizing on something. And again, I don't have any problem with that, but I just thought, you know, God's army standalone thing. But as I was, as I was moving from uh, Burbank to uh, Mapleton, which is where, where we were moving right. You know, that was probably four months before God's army was to open. I I just knew that I was going to be in Utah at least, you know, pretty much full time for six months. So I just wanted to be with my family. So we all just moved up here, right? So and the U-Haul on the way, my wife and and uh, kids were in the car. I was driving the U-Haul, and as I was driving to uh, entertain myself, keep my mind busy and productive, and uh, it's something that, by the way if you ever need a movie, a movie idea, get in your car and drive across the country and don't listen to the radio, just think. And some of my best ideas have come driving. I I love it. So, um, but, uh, on the way I just started to play with that idea. It's like, I knew, you know, I was so confident that God's army was going to work. And I thought, well, if I did do a sequel, what would it be? And so I just started playing around with ideas. And of course I wasn't, uh, uh, I was just trying to be open to, again, I still had that, that, uh, I had that philosophy of not wanting to do anything trivial. It's like, if I'm going to do it, I want it to be, you know, I want it to be better. You know, I want it to be Godfather two to Godfather, not, uh, just your average sequel because there aren't very many sequels that are better than, than the original. You know? Let me
2: throw in right here now that I do think you managed to accomplish that rarity of having a sequel that was better than the original.
1: Oh, Thanks. Thanks. Um, as I was driving, though, I find I had these ideas, these dual ideas of these two missionaries. One was the moment when I thought I almost, you know, I always have when I'm playing around with an idea for a movie. Um, there, you know, there are things that are like, huh, that's really good. You know, it's something that I love to play with. And But there's usually one moment in a in a film when I realize. I got to do it, you know, and for me, the like I said, with Brigham City, it was the last scene. And, uh, as I was toying around with this idea, I had the idea of the missionary, the Latino missionary, um, just pulling his shirt over, you know, after the, after a drive-by shooting and to stop the blood, he pulls his shirt off and you see tattoos on his back. And I was like, that's a great moment. That's a great cinematic moment. And so I was like, okay, I'm 50% there, but I don't have a movie yet. And then I started playing around with, then I started to think about his companion. And I also wanted to do a thing where in a movie, where I'd have a character that you think is the main character and the character that you think is a supporting character. And then by the end of the movie, they just kind of switch places. So the guy that you kind of dismiss and just think he's the sidekick, suddenly he becomes a huge character he almost goes from being funny to tragic. And, um, and then the guy that you thought was the the story was about, he kind of at the end takes kind of a secondary role. And that was important to me to, to play around with that. But when, uh, there was something that had always bugged me that that I hated, that I thought was repulsive in uh, Mormon thought. Something I heard a lot as a missionary, and I hated it. And it was uh, it was the quote that from a former general authority that had said, you know, talking about missionaries and going out in the field and saying, you know, it's better to come home in a casket than to come home dishonored, and. I, to me, I thought that was just a violation of the the doctrine that we supposedly believed in, of, of uh, Jesus's atonement. And then, you know, I knew from my own studies in, in Mormon history, the, the quote that referred to blood atonement where, um, you know, the early Brigham Young, you know, talked about some sins are so serious that even the blood of Christ can't pay for them. So people had to pay for them themselves. And I just... Um, I, uh, oh, um, (laughs) well, I'll hold on. I'll hold on to that thought for later, but I, uh, oh, cool. I, um, (laughs) when I thought of that and I realized I want to have a, I want to have a Mormon missionary character who feels, who, who makes a major mistake and, and that quote comes home for the audience. It's like the real life, um, significance or the, the the real life effects of thinking like that come home. I, I really wanted to do that. That's when I knew that I had a movie.
2: Remind
0: well, of fact play this RFM?
2: Yeah, uh, almost because okay. uh, I was baptized in 1978. This is part of the LDS culture that I imbibed. It was said by leaders of the church, so I accepted it. It was extreme, but maybe the dramatic nature of it is what made it so attractive to be so repeated among members of the church so that Virtually everybody knew it. It had a lot of currency. I'm not sure about today, but I went back, did a little bit of research. I knew when you mentioned it to me or when I saw it on the movie that this was Marion G. Romney. This was his story that he had told. Uh, I went back, I found in 1981 there was an Ensign First Presidency message written by Marion G. Romney in which this story was told. Went back a little bit further, 1979, April General Conference, which would be the second General Conference since the time I was baptized when he told this story and he's addressing, I'm pretty sure this is a general conference priesthood session where he specifically addresses his comments to the youth, i.e. those who are going to be going on missions because he wants them to understand this. And we have that clip just in case there's anybody who thinks that we're making this up out there.
4: And that the spirit of God dwelleth in you. If any man defile the temple of God, Him shall God destroy. Some years ago, the First Presidency said to the youth of the Church, Better dead clean than alive unclean. I remember how my father impressed the seriousness of unchastity upon my mind. He and I were standing in the railroad station in Rexburg, Idaho, in the early morning of November the 12th, 1920. We heard the train whistle and knew that in three minutes I would be on my way to Australia to fill a mission. In that short interval, my father said to me, among other things, My son, you are going a long way from home, but your mother and I, your brother and sisters, will be with you constantly in our thoughts and prayers. We shall rejoice with you in your successes, and we shall sorrow with you in your disappointments. When you are released and returned, we shall be glad to greet you and welcome you back into the family circle. But remember this, my son, we would rather come to this station and take your body off the train in a casket than to have you come home unclean, having lost your
2: virtue. Boom, there it is.
4: I'll, I'll
0: tell you, I I watched this movie as well. And at first I couldn't find it. I was looking for God's Army too, and I couldn't find it anywhere. Uh, you had changed the title on it. And when I watched it, I was in the midst of beginning to really have questions about the church. And I knew the Romney quote and I, I knew how the movie played out. And it really struck me. You did a powerful job of seeing how excuse my French but bullshit theology can cause real harm when the rubber meets the road um, and I thought you did a fantastic job of helping the audience see what bad theology can do
1: yeah yeah well and there's a, there's something else that very few people know about um, the timeline of this where uh, I actually shot this film in two uh, states of grace. I shot it in 2004. So it was really five years after I had shot God's army. And, um, and so I had made Brigham city. And then a, there was a few years when I was trying to get a Joseph Smith film made and that's a whole other show. Um, but, um, so in the timeline, in my own spiritual life, uh, it, it was only maybe four or five months before I made God's army to States of grace that, um, I'd had a very profound spiritual experience that I went into great depth on Mormon stories, uh, some interviews several years ago. Um, if anybody's interested in that, we don't have time to go into it now, but I talk about the moment where I realized that, uh, well, and I feel like in a direct answer to prayer, um, God told me that Mormonism was not real. And so I went from 30 seconds before being a full, a true, you know, full passionate believer to thirty seconds later, realizing that everything I knew about God and the universe and and my place in it and that it was wrong and uh, it was a traumatic, traumatic experience, um, and uh, uh, m- most like Christian mainstream Christians don't understand, you know, what what that kind of a what leaving Mormonism is like, and so for me it was a, a long and painful process. Even just to the point where I was able to tell my my wife what. Had happened and how I felt, but uh, when I made States of Grace, it was like I knew that, I knew that Mormonism wasn't real and it wasn't true, and I knew that I was leaving. I wasn't ready to be public about it yet because I was still processing this experience that I'd had, um, and but I knew that I really only had one more chance to say anything to the Mormon people, you know, from mm-hmm. as, from inside the community, um, because I knew eventually I'd have to you know, come out publicly and say that I was not a believer anymore. And so this was a very, um, but I did it in a very, to me, it was, it was so important. And again, I was trying to process my own the changes that were happening for me, but it was a very loving goodbye that they didn't know it was a goodbye, but it was, uh, but it was, but to me, it was like, what do I, what can I say? And, and I went into it with that attitude was like, I, I really want to, say a few things that are really, really important. And this was one of them, you know, bringing up this, uh, you know, the, the bad theology, this particular, you know, piece of bad theology. But then also for me, it was very important to uh, something that had always bothered me in Mormonism. My uh, early family, my, my, my mother married a Mormon guy when I was seven. That's how I became uh, was adopted into Mormonism and I took to it, but My grandparents on both sides, one was Baptist and one was Pentecostal. And so I had grown up, you know, going mostly to a Pentecostal church. And uh, I knew, you know, I knew Christianity from that standpoint. And so it had always bothered me the way Mormons are with crosses, you know. And so if you uh, if anybody's seen States of Grace recently, you'll see how I I tried to reintroduce the cross in a way. Kind of take some of the stank off of it i guess is a horrible way to say it but to me i was always thinking it was like if you're a mormon back in my time as a mormon it was almost like we were vampires you know it was like whenever a cross would come up there was just this you know this uh revulsion to it and i really wanted to say you know i really wanted to say i wanted to say this is a beautiful symbol and it means so much to so many people. And it, and it should mean so much to us if we really believe what we say we believe. And so I wanted to just kind of leave it as a little gift in the culture, try to make a little bit of a change in the attitude towards the cross, which is how I, you know, worked it into the film. So,
2: Yeah, and I thought that was beautifully done. By the way, Mormons are the true vampires. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, okay, so I, we're going to get to your project, but I do, would you please just take a couple minutes and tell us about the confusion that I have? I think what bill just suggested, the confusion he had on the title of this movie, it was God's army Two, or is it States of grace and why, and what happened there?
1: Well, originally it was just going to be God's army, two States of grace. Um, and, uh, I, I was a little removed. What, what had happened was, you know, as I just briefly mentioned, I'd made God's army. I'd made Brigham City. By that time, all these other Mormon filmmakers had decided, oh, my gosh, look, there's a market, which was funny because I was going all around everywhere telling them, you know, finally, you know, there's a there's a market for our stories. Now we, we can finally tell our stories. And I, I try to talk about telling you know the, the stories about examining our faith and our history and telling our stories the, the way that only we can. Unfortunately, all they ever heard was there's a market so <laughs> rushed to the market, and uh, people that had no business making films at all, um, and had no nothing to say of value, just started flooding the market with um, uh, caca. And uh, and I spoke about that. You know, I made a lot of enemies in 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 the Mormon uh, film world, which didn't exist before then. But then. But because I would call, you know, especially crap like Singles Ward and stuff like that, I would call it out. Hey, I thought the
2: home teachers was really good.
1: Oh, my gosh. I have to get off the show.
2: (laughs) Um, I was kidding about that, by the way.
1: But I was so furious. I mean, I I was like I, you know, like I said at the beginning, I, I was consciously trying to create Mormon cinema and I wanted it to be. I was very naive, you know, idealistic. I was wanting it to be, I thought this is going to be intelligent. And it's going to be powerful. And I would tell people all the time, it's like, whenever anyone thinks of of powerful, beautiful, deep, spiritual movies about God, they're going to look to the Mormon community. Man, I was wrong. <laughs> yeah,
2: You're like I Dr. Really, Frankenstein there.
1: I really believed it. You know, I was like, I was passionate. And then I started to see this crap come out. And it was, to me, it was as insulting as... Um, I mean, one of my uh, inspirations as an independent filmmaker was Spike Lee. I, I, you know, I was young when he first started making his films. And so and I I, he was a he was a hero of mine. You know, it's like here's a guy that didn't like the way his people were being depicted. And uh, so he made a change and he, he, you know, super made a super cheap movie and had a huge impact. And and, uh, all black filmmakers after him, you know, really owe him a, a great debt. Um, and should be incredibly grateful to him. Um, but, you know, he would talk about, and I felt it was the same way. It's like these, these Mormon films that they came out with, it was like, I felt like it was the equivalent of black people making their own minstrel shows. It was like, why would we do that? You know, why, when we've got so much, you know, so much rich history and so much doctrine to explore and so much, it's, you know, the, the struggles of being having faith in the real world, there's so much meat there why are you guys screwing around with this to making fun of us? You know, it's why are you making, it was just, anyway, to me, I was like, you know, I, I, the metaphors I would always use. It was like I, the the cute one would say I I was having a pool party and I invited all of you to come to my pool party and now you're just pooping and peeing in my pool and it, and it really irritates me. That was the cute way. But the other way that I would say it was, you know, Mormon cinema is my baby and it's still a baby and you guys are strangling it in its crib. And, uh, and I feel like that's what they did.
2: How um, did, how did that impact, uh, States of Grace?
1: It impacted it because by the time I, like I say, after Brigham city, I was trying to make this Joseph Smith film that kept me busy for a few years. And, uh, when I finally realized, okay, I need to, I, I got to get a movie out and make States of Grace and, uh, um, um, And so I went back to that idea that I had had, you know, it's like, oh, yeah, you know, the the idea that I'd had from even before the release of God's army and I made it. But I didn't understand what had happened in the uh, in the community, in the Mormon community, in the time between Brigham City in 2001 and States of Grace in in the later part of of Thanksgiving of 2005, because uh, I didn't realize it, but but they had polluted the market so much that people didn't Mormons themselves didn't want to go see Mormon movies anymore. And the most, the most illuminating experience I had with this was I couldn't make the movie work. You know, I put it out to God's army Two, and nobody would go see it and it was getting great reviews and I couldn't understand it. Um, this was a, you know, a sequel to a very successful movie that had only been a few years ago, it had a huge impact and yet people just wouldn't go. And, um, and so I, I pulled it, remarketed it, put it out again, still didn't work. And uh, I ran into Robert Kirby, who was a writer for the um, Salt Lake Tribune. And he, a great guy, he had written about God's army in Brigham City, glowing reviews in the Tribune. And uh, I just bumped into him at the Salt Lake City Library one day. And I said, hey, uh, you know, did you go see States of Grace? And he got this weird look on his face and he goes, no, I didn't. And he said it in a way that was like, okay, now I got to ask. It's like, okay, why didn't you go? And he said, you know, it doesn't make any sense. He says, I've seen your other films. I loved them. And yet when I saw that God's Army 2 was coming out, I thought it's just another crappy Mormon movie. Mm. And that's when I realized that if one of my biggest supporters couldn't separate until he really thought about it, couldn't separate my work from that work. I knew it was doomed. And, uh, and it was, you know, at that point the reputation of Mormon film was uh, soiled and uh, wasn't really anything I could do about it. So, so that's what, and and at that point, it was like, I still want people to see this film. Um, People were associating God's army, the original one with this crap that the other guys were doing. And so to them, you know, singles ward home teachers, and God's army, they were all the same thing, which they are very much not the same thing. And uh, so at that point, I just decided, nah, I'm just going to let it be states of grace. And uh, maybe, you know, non-Mormons, those that aren't, you know, really bigoted against Mormons, maybe they'll uh, embrace it. I don't know. So that's why the, the uh, title change.
2: Right. But then uh, did you find that non-Mormon Christians were excited about seeing a movie about Mormon missionaries?
1: <laughs> no. Well, that was when I, as soon as I realized it's like, OK, this isn't, you know. I'm not going to pull the Mormons in to see this film. I started thinking, well, I'm going to market this to Christians. But and I already knew that I was leaving Mormonism. So it was like, this, you know, this will be a fun experience. So we'd go to Vegas and Phoenix and everywhere and we would do these screenings. And salt lake and try to invite the ministers from the christian communities to come watch the film and uh it was like pulling teeth to get anybody there once they saw it they loved it you know they'd come out saying oh this is great they wanted their uh, congregations to see it they wanted you know they wanted to share that they really liked the movie but they they had just they couldn't get their people to see it because again you know you get 15 minutes into the movie and it's just two mormon missionaries and there's no you know the movie's not saying they're bad people or that they're doing anything wrong. And so the Christians are just like, yeah, we don't want to watch this. Um, You know, if they, those who stuck with it really appreciated the film. And, uh, um, and I did have a very small, very, very small um, Christian fan base for the film. But, but it's really hard because there's such a, uh, there's such a, a knee jerk bias against Mormon missionaries, understandable for, for the average um, American Christian, so they they don't want to, you know, they're very cautious about anything with, with Mormons in it. Well, that
2: covers the three movies. We have one left. We've got about 20 minutes till the top of the hour, and I want to reserve that for talking about your upcoming project. Tell us about it. And this one's based on a true story, correct? Yeah, yeah. But it still has Mormon missionaries.
1: <laughs> All right, well, get this. So, <laughs> I thought um, after falling, I was like, I don't want, by the way, falling is the best Mormon film ever made. It's the best. R rated Mormon film. Where can we see it? My best film. You can't see it. Um, it's mine. You can't watch it. Uh, I think next year I'm actually going to put it out and make it, um, widely available. So you'll, you'll be able to watch it then, but it is, uh, I feel like it's my best film and I feel like it's, uh, um, And it has to do with a Mormon, a lapsed Mormon character. Um, Anyway, so so, it's the best film that nobody can see, and uh, best film I've made that nobody can watch.
2: Makes it hard to contradict.
1: Yeah, yeah, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Trying to build a mystique about it, right? So, um, anyway so I thought I'm never going to have any, I don't want to do any more movies that have anything to do with Mormonism. It's time for me to move on artistically, creatively, spiritually, um, pro or con. I just don't want anything to do with it. And that was my, uh, that was pretty much where I was. And, uh, so, um, I guess I'll be super uh, transparent here and honest, but, uh, you know, that moment I told you about where girl crazy, when I was just, when I was at the cocaine guy's office and he was wanting me to put nudity and I was just thinking, where am I, what am I doing? And I was willing to give it all up. Well, I came to that a few years ago, same kind of point where after falling uh, and the other films and uh, I was so disillusioned by, I was just heartbroken when, when Mormonism turned out not to be real. It was to me, it was uh it was uh, devastating, and uh, I just kind of stumbled around for several years, you know, trying to just find, you know, be happy somehow. Just keep moving, keep putting one foot in front of another. Um, I, I still have my faith in God, like uh, I've never lost my belief in God and my faith in God, and I still loved, you know, Jesus and His teachings. But Mormonism had did, has had done such a number on me that I didn't trust anything, you know, it's like, I didn't trust any, the idea someone belonging to another church of any kind, I was just, no, you know, it was, I wanted nothing to do with it and nothing to do with religion, uh, institutional religion at all. And, uh, I happened to have been befriended by this strange, more, uh, this strange Christian pastor who recognized me in a, uh, And a Carl's Jr. one day, uh, despite the fact that at the time I was like huge, uh, you know, in my in my depressing, nihilistic unhappiness, I was like smoking cigars, drinking beer and gained like 100 pounds. I was I was a huge dude. So I don't know. 1977 Elvis. There you go. Yeah, I was Elvis. Um, Not as charismatic, but but yeah, same principle. And uh, anyway, this guy says, you're Richard Dutcher. And I said, no, I'm not. And he goes, yes, you are. And I was like, no, I'm not. I just didn't want to talk to anybody, you know, and it's like, I don't. And uh, and then finally, you know, he kept at it. So I was like, yeah, OK, yeah, I'm I'm. And then he said, hey, I've seen your movies. And he says he talked about being a pastor and I'm looking at him. He's this huge guy and he's got tattoos all over and long hair and a big beard. And looks like he's like the king of the hell's angels, you know. And uh, I was so intrigued by this guy that he said, hey, you want to have lunch sometime? So I was like, all right. I gave him my number. We met up for lunch, and I, I just liked this human so much that I really wanted to support whatever he was doing. So I went to his you know church service, and and that was a real change. In a in a, it felt like home to me. It was the strangest thing. It was like uh, it was home, and and there's a whole experience there that we can't talk through that. We don't have time, but I was in a very regenerative place, and um. I've always been a, some, a a prayerful person, although in that period, I didn't have any faith that anybody was really hearing me or listening to me or that it made any difference. But uh, I got to that same place where I was before, where I was just like, you know, on my knees telling God that I I didn't care what I just want to know what he wanted me to do. You know, it's like I, I, I tried all the other stuff. I wasn't happy. I didn't want anything to do with it. Um, And I just wanted to do what he wanted me to do, whether it was like, give up filmmaking for good, go do anything else. And I just said, you know, but I'm kind of dumb. And, uh, you just got to let me know for sure. If you're going to talk to me, you got to let me know that I hear it loud and clear, right? Like he had done telling me that Mormonism wasn't true. So, um, not long after that, I'd had a, a friend at church, at the little church that I was going to. And, uh, He kept wanting me to watch this 17 minute video. He said, Oh, I saw this YouTube video. This is a guy, he was a Mormon missionary and he became a born again Christian while he was a missionary. You got to watch it. And, you know, I was being polite to him, but inside my eyes were rolling back to the back of my head. And I was just thinking, I don't want to watch some stupid YouTube video about some stupid Mormon kid, you know, becoming a stupid born again Christian. I was just not having it, you know? And, uh, but he kept at it. You know, every time I'd see him, he'd bring this up. So finally, one Saturday night, I was like, all right, I'm going to see Danny tomorrow. He's going to ask me. So I'm just going to watch this damn video, get it over with. And uh, so I pull it up. And it's this guy named Michael Wilder. And it's a little clip from one of his. Uh, uh, he has a little music ministry and they go around telling their stories. But he tells the story about how he was uh, an LDS missionary in Florida. And uh, he tells the story of his um born again experience and his transformation into a a uh, a christian and leaving mormonism and how that of course you know led to a big conflict with his lds leaders and the end of his mission anyway halfway through this video it was just so clear to me that this was the story that this was it this is this is my movie the next movie i'm making about this guy and uh but there was in my mind, I was like, really? I mean, in my mind, that was what I was thinking. I was like, really? Really? This? I don't want to do this. <laughs> um, but, you know, I had asked. So I, I reached out to him and, and you know, I said, hey, your story is, you know, I don't know if you know who I am, but uh, I made some films about Mormonism um, and he knew who I was and he had seen the films. And uh, he had actually mentioned to a guy, eight or nine years before one of his best friends, when he said, Hey, I think, uh, you know, he was working on a manuscript for a book and he said, I think this could make a good movie. And, uh, and he, he said, I think if if anybody ever makes it into a movie, I want it to be Richard Dutcher. And he didn't know me. I didn't know him, but he, he knew that uh, he, you know, he knew States of Grace. He knew God's army and he knew that I knew what Mormonism was and that I knew what leaving the church was. And so anyway, um, that's my film, yeah. So that's the one that I uh, I went out. I actually moved to Florida. People didn't understand why I moved to Florida. That was why. It was like I wanted to um, really know him. Um, I wanted to know the people that were involved in this story and interview all of them. I wanted to. Uh, they they uh, uh, he started a music ministry with his wife and and that's that's what they do and they run a little uh, hotel in a bed and breakfast in near Orlando, Florida. And so I actually just went and. And started living there and, and working with them, working on the script while he was working on his manuscript for his book, which uh, just came out um, last year. It's called Passport to Heaven. Um, the movie's not called Passport to Heaven, but the book is called Passport to Heaven. In fact, I think I have a copy. I do have a copy. So there's a copy, Passport to Heaven. And that's
2: a picture of the elder on it, Elder Wilder?
1: Yeah, yeah, M- Michael Wilder. Yeah, so that's him as a missionary in Florida. But, uh, the movie's actually, uh, I mean, it's based on the story. Uh, the movie's somewhat different because like I say, as he was finishing the manuscript, I was writing the script. And so I was not only using the pages that he was giving me, but I was also interviewing all the people that were involved in the story. Um, so that I could, uh, uh kind of, you know, tell the story in a, in a really cinematic way. And, uh, and oddly, in, as, in the weird times that we live, just when I was feeling like, okay, the script's pretty good. It's time to go out and start raising money. That's when COVID hit and kind of mm. uh, shut things down. But in, it's been a blessing because I was able to spend an, a couple of years just really tightening the script and really um, improving it and focusing on it. So now that's uh, that's actually why I'm in Salt Lake right now, is I'm just out on the road meeting with people trying to raise money to, to get this movie going, which is... Uh, it's a huge part of the filmmaking process. People don't realize that. And So, um, by the way, uh, Bill, are you a millionaire? Do you want to uh, invest in a movie? So. I'm, I'm about
0: the furthest thing from a millionaire. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I'd love to throw a few bucks that way. I'd love to know how can folks, cons- how can they support the, the film?
2: Oh, yes. And while you're talking about it, what is the title? And can we get the promo poster up on the screen?
1: There we go yeah this is not the uh this is a concept poster so this is probably not the what the final poster is going to be but this was my concept to try to get the idea of of what I'm doing you know it shows um, kind of get gives you the idea of what the what what the film's about you know the true story of a mormon missionary's journey to christ and um I was joking around i've been joking around that when I do put it out maybe i'm going to just get you know when i when I released falling in Utah I I got a billboard that said uh, the first R-rated Mormon movie, (laughs) just to to irritate people mostly. Um, But this one I'm thinking about doing a a bunch of billboards that will say God's Army 3, Jesus is enough. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, by the way, I just want to, I don't know if you believe in
2: synchronicity. I mean, you are a Christian now, correct? So maybe you just believe in God intervening every now and again in our lives? Sure. Um, where was he you met this preacher again
1: where did i meet him yes what was, was the name richard? of the restaurant oh it was carl's jr and richard who is carl who is carl uh he's the main character of sling blade
2: well he's also a main character in states of
1: grace oh there you go good catch thank interesting. you interesting I got a million of them wow good job good job
2: so if anybody wants to know what that is about and hasn't seen States of Grace, hopefully you will do so. It's certainly worth the watch. Now, if we can close out before we go to phone calls and you can just tell people how it is that they could contribute slash support this movie.
1: Yeah, no, that's, thank you. Um, one of the, the difficulties I have as a filmmaker is, uh, uh legitimate raising money. It's like, I'm out raising, trying to raise, raise very large amounts of money. This is not a really a low budget movie. Um, and uh, because of the securities and exchange laws, you know, there's only so much I can do publicly to talk about it. But one of the things I can say is that uh, I'm, uh, I'm restricted from spending any of the money that I raise until, you know, we reach a, a $3 million benchmark. So in the meantime, I've got to rely on, you know, my own funds or, uh, you know, friends who are, who are either loaning or donating money to the, the cause to keep me going, keep me on the road, keep me meeting with people. So that I can uh, so that I can raise the necessary funds to make the film. So here's uh, on this sheet here you can see a, a one of the one of the ways that we can do that is if people donate to the movie through the Adams Road Ministry. Adams Road Ministry is the the ministry that Michael Wilder, who wrote the book and whose story this is, uh, it's it's um, his ministry and uh, his groups. They have a ministry, and so you can donate here. You can go to their website, adamsroadministry.com, scroll down to the bottom and donate. And if you say, you know, that it's for the movie, there's a little space where you can add a note. If you say it's it's for the movie, for Jesus is enough movie, then uh, those funds can go, not only can the people get, you know, a um, tax deductible uh, credit for their taxes because it's through a, a, a 501c3, a nonprofit organization. So the donors can get a, a write-off, but then the ministry can legitimately, you know, use that money to help, you know, help get the movie made. So, so that's what, that's, uh, what we're doing. And yes, I would, uh, greatly appreciate, uh, any support, not only, you know, through donations, um, but if anyone would like to participate in a larger way to, um, please get in touch with me and, uh, and let me know. I'd be happy to meet with people and talk more specifically about all the details of, uh, of larger investments or loans and that kind of situation. So how
2: would they get yeah. in touch with you?
1: They would get in touch with me through my email, which is, uh, Richard at edgewaterfilm.com. Edgewater film is the, uh, name of the film company, the Edgewater film company. So Richard at edgewaterfilm.com. Uh, you can reach me through there.
2: Fantastic.
1: And then also, if somebody, uh, we should all just—if somebody's interested in watching *States of Grace* or *God's Army* or *Brigham City*, you don't have Amazon, or uh, um, you'd rather just have a, a hard copy like a DVD. If anybody still does that, you can go to RichardDutcher.com and uh, order one through there. So,
2: fantastic. All right, are you up for some phone calls?
1: Yeah. Yep. Let's do
2: it. All right. Do we have any? I think Bill is talking to somebody yeah, right yeah. now. Yeah,
0: we've got we've got two of them. So let's uh, let's pull off. This is Marco. Let me make sure this is here. Marco, are you there?
6: Yes, it is me. Oh, Hi, awesome. Marco El Polo. Excellent, yes, Marco well,
0: glad, Polo. How are you doing? I'm glad you're on, El Polo. So, uh, <laughs> so, what do you got for us? You're on tonight with uh, Mormonism Live, Richard Dutcher.
2: Yeah, yeah, that's just a quick
6: shout out to Radio Free Mormon. Sorry, I, I messed up the polo last time. That's uh, that's on me. So, no, no worries there. Hey, Mister Dutcher, a pleasure to meet you. Um, I think you might know um, a Joe Plante. He used to run up like Utah Filmmakers Association or something like that a long time ago. He might still do it. Yeah. Anyways, yeah, um, pleasure to meet. Oh, cool. Anyways, um, so big fan of your work and I am really proud that you're actually uh, doing another film because I I was thinking to myself man it's been a minute since I've heard anything from Mr. Dutcher (laughs) so I I think it's great that you're doing this and I definitely want to support you so quick question I kind of uh, have this little bug in me and kind of getting excited to do a kind of a, a sort of like a well let me ask you a question are you familiar and this might be a stupid question to ask a movie director but are you familiar with Mystery Science Theater 3000?
1: Yeah sure sure (laughs)
6: <laughs> okay. okay, Marco. So I, Marco. I just have this idea of maybe doing something. Yes, go ahead. Do you like Servo or Crow best? Oh, God. You know, I think rfm I would see you as Servo, and so I would say Servo is the best. <laughs> so, oh, okay. Because a close second. It's hard, it's a toss up. Okay, go ahead with your question. Sorry about
3: that. It's a I just awesome. had
6: to know. Okay. Yeah. No, this is a great question. No, I was going to ask you just to get your permission, really, of more than anything else. If it's okay with you, if we did kind of a, a, a you know lighthearted riff treatment of some of your your films and stuff, I, I should kind of want to do it. I'm pretty serious about doing it.
1: Um. Yeah, I'd probably be okay with that. I had a recently, somebody sent me a link, not recently, I guess it was a couple of years ago. Somebody thinking I would enjoy it, sent me a link to a, a couple of guys. They weren't Mormons. They weren't Christians. They were just, there were some guys that did that kind of stuff, but they just basically, they would find a, a Christian movie and then they would play it and they would roast it, you know, as they were going along. And they, they had done God's army.
4: Mm-hmm.
1: And uh, I okay. didn't, I didn't find okay. it funny. I didn't. <laughs> they were they were just so mean spirit and so it was like uh, such jackasses that it was like i wrote back to this guy and it's like why did you send me that that's like you know it's like someone sending you two hours of someone making fun of your children the whole time you know and I, was like, hey, I I don't you know if it was done good naturedly and stuff it's like sure sure you know if it was if it was affectionately done oh, yeah
3: for
6: sure and and yeah, and that's 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 going to that, that be my next thing in Radio Free Mormon. If you would like to participate in said riff, that would be wonderful. But I'm not Let going to participate right now. Marco and say
2: Marco and say, hey, you know? I have toyed with the idea of doing a mystery science theater 3000 general conference review, but I don't know if it's ever going to work. <laughs> <laughs> right on right on
6: no richard for sure i would definitely make sure it's you know in, in good taste generally and I, I would actually want to um have you look at them before even uh, posting them anywhere because i do respect like i said i do respect your work in as much as i would just go ahead and do it without the permission so yeah i yeah.
2: appreciate it yeah. marco thank you so much for calling in it's always great to hear from you
6: yeah great to hear you too rfm and bill take care now
2: Take it easy.
0: Bye-bye. And we've got one other call on the line. This is Roger. Roger, you're on the line. How are you?
5: I am just great.
0: How are you? Good to hear hear your voice.
5: (laughs) Thank you. I just want to make a quick comment on these last comments before I start my real comment. And that was that uh, Elder Wilder's, um, Micah Wilder's mother, uh, Lynn Wilder, wrote a previous book on bailing grace. Which I would suggest strongly you read it before you read Passport to Heaven even. It it understand it helps understand how she and the rest of her family left the church when uh her son uh converted to Christianity. Yeah. Now yeah. <laughs> also uh I would like to bear my testimony about gone <laughs> God's Army was my mission, and that's why I remember it's been so many years since I saw it that uh, I served in uh, Lincoln Heights area of of Los Angeles, California, and uh, that was so accurate. Uh, One thing, let's talk about older missionaries. At that time, only one missionary was allowed to go into the field every six months because the draft board uh, would not allow more than that m- many missionaries going in. So their missionaries came back from Vietnam, and then they wanted to serve a mission. So many of the missionaries there were serving from, let's say, uh, 25 to 35 years old when they served at their mission. So that really happened. Um, also, I want to emphasize that if one thing that it teaches is that if you expect your mission to be perfect, you're, you're going to the wrong place. My first companion there at that in that area would serve uh, two hours, and then he'd come home after he bought some more guitar mi- uh, music and plays a gu- guitar. Um, also, one was accurate is the hookers there in, in uh, Hollywood. That's exactly where I served. And you had to go around that area if you wanted to stay out of them. Another thing was that what I loved was the cockroach collection in that in that movie. Mm-hmm. That arm. If you think you're gonna you're gonna serve in a U.S. and not have third world conditions, you're a, in a, a world of hurt. We had to clean out our our apartment. It took us hours and hours, days to get the cockroaches out of it. We couldn't uh, cook in our oven because the cockroaches would fall out of the top of the, of the stove and fall into our, our food. Uh, we had a lowered ceiling. And so every night I had to listen to the, to the um, mice running across my head and, and dropping down um, stuff on my face as I slept we had to clean our fridge up and eventually got the car coaches mostly out of it. But it, it, it's terrible that if if you think that you're going to have uh, a good conditions as a missionary, you've got, you've got another thing coming. And we, we served there in the Hollywood state. And to give you a timing of when that happened, Elder, um, Elder LeGrand Richards came to be our uh, state conference speaker, and uh, the next week, uh, Elder David O. McKay died as president, and I've still got the LDA LDA Times uh, showing the death of President McKay. Mm. So my thoughts are, missionary is not, uh, a mission is not a, a bunch of roses, and if you and I'm sorry about that little boy that she felt that she couldn't bring to the, your your um, movie because it might teach you some of the reality of what's actually a, a mission. I, that mission there, I had another mission companion. That uh, There's a part in the mission um, discussions, the six discussions, that says, if you want, we can help you by taking away your cigarettes and throwing them in the garbage. Well, I came home and found out that my, my uh companion was taking them in the in the garage and smoking the ones that we were taking from our our investigators. So you're not gonna get perfect companions either. And that's my thoughts.
2: Thanks, Roger. Yeah, thanks, Roger. This is the best kept secret in the LDS church is that missions are not beds of roses. Right, right.
0: All right, we've got one more. We had two calls. One dropped off, but here's our last call. This is Eric. Uh, Eric's on the line. Eric, are you there?
3: Hey, I, I am here. I'm awesome. almost disappointed you took my call. I was hoping we could do another 40 minutes about Roger's cockroaches.
2: Yeah, maybe, maybe those are. Hey, look, look. I had we had cockroach issues in a certain apartment in Japan, and the deal with the cockroaches was you come in. Uh, from tracting at night and it's dark out, right? And there's this main area with a tatami mats where you're going to put your your um, your um, blankets and everything to sleep every night. And you come in, you turn on the light. No, 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 no. That's what it was. I've been out only a few months. We come in. There's a missionary. Before you turn on the lights, you got to grab the vacuum cleaner. And you have it ready to go. You turn on <laughs> the lights and then you start going to work with that vacuum cleaner before all the cockroaches can disappear in the corners. That was the nightly ritual.
3: Well, I, I'm I'm sorry I missed out on that. And as much as I'd like to talk about t- cockroaches, I thought maybe I'd ask about filmmaking.
0: Yeah, please, yeah, please get us back on track.
3: <laughs> you know, Richard, I, I haven't seen a lot of really great depictions of the loss of faith uh, in film. Um, one is the uh, the the damn them scene in. God's army, which just watching as an ex-Mormon is is absolutely heart wrenching, and the other is uh, was w- recently um, Richard Garfield in uh, uh, under the banner of Heaven in the car as he was, you know, his, his heart was breaking realizing that Mormonism wasn't real. I just wanted wondered if you could address what what does it take to put on film a, a realistic and meaningful depiction of uh, of the loss of faith
1: yeah uh well it's one of the hardest things to to do it's um i've found a lot of times in my in my spiritual filmmaking career i find myself often filming something that um nobody's done before or at least nobody's done well before i you know usually i mean if you're making a a bank heist movie or a romantic comedy or whatever you know there's hundreds of examples of oh you can go back and do it like you know, like Scorsese did it or like, you know, you can go on and on and on. But um, when I made God's Army, there was, I mean, the scene where the, the elder, one of the hardest scenes to get to capture on film for that film was uh, where the elder is praying at night by himself in the room, trying to, you know, have some connection with God, trying to have some, you know, experience, trying to have, you know, gain a testimony, you know, as, as a Latter-day Saint would say, and of course the actor that i was working with wasn't lds and uh and uh so i was trying to get something out of him that he hadn't experienced that he um he didn't he was jewish he didn't even you know he didn't have a, a a relationship with jesus so it was even like a i was just trying to i was trying to tell him you know what these experiences were like and um and he was trying to portray it and it was i was shooting on film and i had very little money to make the movie and we burned through so much film of me just he's sitting at this chair, you know, praying and I'm lying on the floor, like looking up at him just a few feet away. And I'm talking to him and I'm working. And it it took forever until we got something that I in fact, I went back and reshot some of that. It's like I, I thought it's like, OK, I've got it. But then when I was editing it, it was like, no, I don't have it. There's that's not there. So I had to go back and bring the actor back and shoot some more. Um, uh, and then, you know, then. It, he was able to portray more of an emotional experience between a father and a son. And that's what connected for him. And And I was able to use that in the film, but uh, the same thing in Brigham city, when I didn't get William hurt in a way, I was like uh, to play the sheriff um, in a way I was thinking, well, okay, if I'm going to play him, I knew I was going to be able to get that last scene. It was like, I know exactly what I'm going for. I know exactly what that guy is feeling. I know exactly, you know, I know this. And so that was one of the fastest things I've ever been able to film. You know, we were this chaos with all of these people doing this big chapel scene. And then it was OK. Now the the heart of the scene, we got to shoot it. And it was just like, put the camera on me. Bam. We did it. And uh, it was easy. It was like I, I was able to just go there immediately. And I've had those experiences. Uh, um but, but it's that thing where you're trying to explore, you're trying to find a way to depict something. Usually it's nonverbal. You're trying to de- depict something that's very, very internal and very hard to, to depict. And um, another reason I'm excited about Jesus is enough, the movie that I'm, I'm hoping to make is you know, as soon as I can pull the money together, is that's a key part. You know, and it's uh, something else that draws me to this story. That moment when, when the missionary um, in this film that moment when it culminates in one night when it's just him and god and it comes crashing down i know what that's like you know i know exactly what that's like and i can't wait to be able to uh and i've never seen it on film before i've never seen that on film and i'm gonna i'm gonna swing for the fences i want you know i want people to just be knocked out of their seats you know um and I want that experience preserved on film. And I agree with you, the Andy, Andrew Garfield scene in Under the Banner of Heaven, um, that was beautifully done, but that's going to look like uh, kindergarten compared to what I'm going to do. So, <laughs> <laughs> um,
3: yeah. What was it like when you were, when you were directing the missionary uh, you know, losing his faith in God, God's army, you were still a believing Latter-day Saint. What was it like for you to go to that place in your mind
1: while you were still faithful? Well, you know what, it was uh, a story I've I've not really told, I don't think publicly, but, uh, or at least not in a very long time. But the first time, you know, I'd had the experience of knowing I wanted to make movies about Mormons. I knew that that there was an audience. I knew that if I did it well, that it would really take off. Um, And then I came to you know, it's like, I'm going to tell my story, but it's really hard to describe to people what it's like to, you know, in the year, you know, in the late 1990s, when I was trying to create something that didn't exist before, you know, it's like, I'm trying to create Mormons had only had the institutional films. It's all we had. We had, you know, windows of heaven and, and legacy and horse shit like that. Um, and so I was thinking, how am I going to, um, tell the story and do it authentically. I want it to be real, but it was hard. You know, my, I, I did like three drafts of the script and I gave it to my wife, Gwen. And I, uh, I was, you know, the third draft when I was finally like, I think I, I think it's good, you know? And by the way, in the original thing, the the character of elder Allen, the main young guy, he was, a uh, uh, he was a baseball player. He had given up his, you know, given up a chance to go play professional baseball to go on a mission. That seemed like a good dramatic story for me at the time. Um, but my wife, who was very perceptive, um, she said, "You know what? It's good, but it's missing something." And I said, "What is it missing?" And she says, "It's missing some of you. It's just, you know, it's a nice movie, but it's just missing, it's missing you." And so I didn't. I was trying to figure out what did she mean by that. And then it clicked, and I was like, "Oh," what she's basic, what she's saying is that it does. It's not. Uh, I'm not being honest enough. I'm not being real enough. I'm being a little guarded. I'm trying to think too much about what Mormons want to see rather than what uh, story I want to tell. And so I went back to the beginning and I stripped and threw away the baseball stuff. And, uh, and the big step for me, was like, all right, this guy's coming, not from a successful baseball career, but he's coming from a broken family that where the father um, was a child molester. And it was like, okay, now we're in the real. And I knew as soon as I did that, I was like, man, I'm going to catch hell from my family. Like, (laughs) this is going to be rough. And, uh, but as soon as I made that decision, it was like, okay, we're in this now. And so I was honest, you know, I threw in my own Carthage jail experience. I threw in all the doubts that I had had, you know, things I had struggled with, you know, and tried to make sense of. Um, and that's when, you know, I gave it back to my, my wife and she said, yeah, now it's good. (laughs) And, uh, yeah, so that's, um, I kind of forgot what you'd ask me now. I got carried away.
0: So. Well, I think you answered it perfectly. Yeah, certainly how,
1: how to capture Absolutely. those moments. Yeah. Thank you, Eric. Thank you, Richard. Yeah. One thing I'm just excited about, though, and it's like, uh, and, and you know, for me, it's going back. One of the things that just thrilled me and energized me about, you know, me in the late 1990s was, you know, I I, I wanted to tell these stories that other people weren't telling and even though I'm not LDS anymore, um, and I'm not interested in, you know, in promoting, you know, that worldview anymore at all or sharing it, but it's the same thing. It's like there, there, there are so few movies. If you start to think about when, um, I mean, almost all movies, if you if you think about it, they're almost all just commercial products. They're just trying to entertain people, you know, it's this big stories and, you know, excitement and 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 spectacle and, you know, and um, sex and action. And um, there are so few films and so few filmmakers who are interested in the, in human spirituality and trying to explore it and depict it. And, um, and that's, you know, that's what really drives me, you know? And so for me, it's, it's kind of weird. It's like, you know, I'm going back into this, into spiritual filmmaking um, because that's still so, you know, it's so needed and it's so necessary. And it's like, now, you know, now I'm uh, um, RFM. You told me, you, you said, you talked to me about how you found it interesting, how you could kind of track my own uh, spiritual progress or my evolution. Maybe is a better way of saying it through, through these films. And yes, you can, because as soon as I left girl crazy and the commercial filmmaking behind, and I started to realize I can use my filmmaking to inform my spiritual journey and my spiritual journey can inform my filmmaker, my filmmaking. And it was just kind of a rope that just continued. And it was, it was the best time of my life. You know, it was like I was able to just, you know, charge forward and and I was able to grow spiritually. Ironically, I, I grew out of the Mormon church, but I was able to I probably wouldn't have if I hadn't been a filmmaker, you know. Um, but those two things were informing each other. And so the exciting thing for me now in my life is I'm I'm back to that except now I'm you know, now I'm tackling a story that, uh, you know, and again, I'm tackling a story that nobody else is interested in telling. uh, And I don't honestly don't think anybody can, can tell very well because how many people know what this is? How many people who make films have been Mormon missionaries? Let me qualify that. How many people who make can make good films were Mormon missionaries? How many of those left and how many of them, you know, understand what, uh, the born again experiences, how many of them understand that that kind of intimate, deep, powerful, personal relationship with uh, with Jesus Christ? How many people understand that? Uh, so I'm excited because it's like, you know what? I'm venturing into a, um, a project in an area that I'm going to be able to make a movie that whether people like it or dislike it, it's going to be unlike anything they've ever seen before and uh, unlike anything that anyone's ever made before. And how many filmmakers can say that? You know, I'm very, very, very blessed and excited to be doing this.
0: It is exciting. I'm
2: it is very much. So I just want to make two comments here. First one is William Hurt. By the way, he's broadcast news, right? Yeah. I, I always get him confused with, I think it's John Hurt yeah. from Alien and uh, many other things, including Harry Potter. But um, regardless, um, there's. I think I can say without qualification that William Hurt, if you had gotten him, would not have done a better job than you did in that role and in that scene in mm-hmm. the sacrament meeting.
1: Wow. Thanks.
2: You nailed it. Could Thank not you. have been done better, in my opinion.
1: Thank you.
2: The second thing is I've been talking with a number of people about your movies, one of which is Maven. And going harking back to the, the idea about I'd rather have you come home in a box than Dishonored, Maven made this really interesting comment to me, I think it was yesterday when we were talking on the phone, that I had escaped me and I wanted to bring her on so she could share it with the audience. Surprise, Maven.
4: Can you guys hear me okay? Yeah. Okay. I had a notification earlier that my mic was, like, unplugged or something. So, um, yeah. So, (laughs) I guess the the point that I had noticed with the quote about going home in a casket is that that's exactly what happens in the original God's Army uh, with your character, Richard. Not for worthiness purposes, but, you know, anyway, that was it.
1: Yeah.
2: No, I think it's great because the, the the elder in the second movie, God's Army 2, who tries to commit suicide does not succeed and ends up alive and going home. There's only one person in all of your move in the two movies. Uh, we'll take out uh, Brigham City because a lot of people die in that. But uh in the two uh God's Army and God's Army 2 movies, there's only one person who ends up going home in a box and that is the most righteous missionary.
1: Well, there is somebody who you never see him go in the box, but there's There's a little bit of there's some death in States of Grace. There's a couple characters that die, but you don't see them in the box. You see them get killed. You just don't see them. Oh,
2: with the drive-by shooting.
1: Yeah, the drive-by shooting and another one. So, well, yeah, I guess there's more. Wow, that's there's a body count in that movie. Wow. But are any of the Mormon missionaries who die? It's an action movie. Yeah, it's uh, yeah. There's no other missionaries who die.
2: Yeah, I think it's just Elder Dalton is the only one who bites the dust.
1: You know, it is really funny that people so often ask me if I'm, if I'm in God's army too, and uh, my character. And it's like, well, you don't, you don't remember. I mean, I guess I could have come back as like Obi Wan Kenobi or something, but uh, yeah.
2: Oh yeah, at the in
0: Mormonism, Wars, right? anything's possible. The I mean, <laughs> Angel Moroni, right? So you just needed a Ouija
2: board scene in there so you could communicate. <laughs> Couldn't pull that off. So all right, well, I think we're done tonight. No more callers, right, Bill?
0: We're it. I ended the lines, so we are done, my friend.
2: Richard, thank you so much for coming on tonight to talk with us and our audience. And I really hope that everybody will take a long, hard thought about donating. And if you are in a position where you can uh, make investments of the kind that are necessary for movies to be made and hopefully get a return on your money, uh, please contact Richard Dutcher personally. He'll be glad to talk with you and answer any questions you might have about that.
0: Love it. Excited to see the new movie,
1: Richard. Thanks. Thanks. Yep. It uh, takes a long time to get a movie made. So don't expect it. it in the next few months. It'll be a little. Well,
0: long. plus the one you said you were going to release next year that you're holding on to.
1: That's true. That's yeah, right. So there's two on the oh, way. That's true. Love it. Thanks awesome. again so much, Richard. Yeah. Thanks. It's been a blast. Have a great night. Thanks.